Hello everyone and welcome to the Green Minds podcast, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations on climate change and sustainability. My name is Eva and I'm your host for this episode. Today's focus is on a topic that holds the key to our planet's future, climate education. We'll dive into why understanding and educating ourselves about climate issues is not merely valuable, but essential in our collective efforts to mitigate the impacts of this global crisis. From the interconnectedness of ecosystems to the implications for future generations, we'll explore the profound significance of fostering climate literacy and awareness. In this episode, we'll talk about how education shapes our understanding, actions and collective response to the pressing challenges posed by a changing climate. Climate education means not only asking whether and what kind of knowledge is being communicated, but also considering how it is communicated. I therefore also like to talk about how the topic of climate change is presented in the media and how language can consciously and subconsciously influence our attitudes and behavior. Today's guest is Rosie Dean, who did a first degree in chemical engineering and started a career in fintech, where she worked for more than 15 years as a product manager and banking consultant. Recently, she completed her master's degree in sustainable development from the Center for the Environment and Sustainability at the University of Surrey and founded her own business, What on Earth. The mission of What on Earth is to educate the world about the impact that humanity is having on the planet. At What on Earth, Rosie provides climate consultancy and training to businesses and educational establishments to empower them in their drive to net zero. Welcome to the Green Minds podcast, Rosie. I'm very happy to be able to talk to you about such an important topic as climate education. Thanks, Ava. It's lovely to be here. Before we dive deeper into the topic, I would be very interested to know what brought you from your job in the IT industry to education and training in the field of climate change and sustainability. Would you like to tell us what motivated you to found What on Earth and focus on the topic of climate education? Sure. Well, I guess it was a fairly circuitous route, really. Um, as you mentioned, I studied chemical engineering as my first degree. And actually, I learned back then, that was in the late 80s, um, about climate change, that that was happening. And, um, but I didn't really want to go into the, the chemical industry um, for various reasons. So I ended up working in IT and in banking software. And I just kind of went about my life assuming that all these clever people were taking care of this issue of climate change. Um, and I guess I just had a bit of a wake up call probably well, I kind of followed it in, in the background, but I think my big wake up call came in about 2015 with the Paris uh, COP. Um, and that's what kind of inspired me then to go and learn more about it, which is the, what led me to my master's in sustainable development, which then led me to finding out about climate fresque and becoming a, a climate education consultant. That's the short version of the story. <laughs> Thanks for sharing this with us, Rosie. That was quite interesting and insightful. Um, I know that you have already gained a lot of experience in the field of climate education. Um, I can imagine that it's not always easy to address the topic of climate change and to talk and educate people with different levels of knowledge and opinions about this complex topic. And this raises the question for me, what are the key challenges in promoting effective climate education and how can they be addressed, addressed in your opinion? Mm. Well, one of the key challenges is just getting people to engage with the topic uh, because for some people it's just not that interesting. It's a bit of a turn off when you say, oh, do you want to come on a three hour workshop about climate change? <laughs> um, and it can also uh, spark quite a lot of emotion and fear. 
because people don't, you know, have maybe heard these terrible stories about we're all going to drown because of sea level rise or that kind of thing. Um, and I guess the best way we've found to get around that is is by word of mouth. So once people have come on, so we the Climate Fresh workshop that I facilitate aims to be very engaging and actually quite good fun. And so although it does take three hours, as I'm sure you experienced yourself when you first did it, that time just whizzes by really quickly. And um, in fact, quite often at the end, people say, oh, no, haven't we, you know, can't we have longer to talk about this? Because once you really engage with it, you realize what an important topic it is. And we hope to leave people with feeling quite inspired and wanting to talk about it more in their own community. So it's really that snowball effect of trying to, you know, through word of mouth, getting people to engage more in the topic. That's very interesting. Uh, you mentioned the Climate Fresk workshop. I think there are a few listeners who don't know Climate Fresk or these kinds of workshops. Could you maybe please um, explain what Climate Fresk is and what you do at these workshops? Sure. So it came about again as part of the Paris 2015 uh, COP meeting. So uh, someone called Cedric Ringenbach, who was uh, part of the SHIFT project in Paris, decided uh, he wanted to educate his students about what was in the IPCC reports, which are what the, the COP are based on, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who produce regular reports on the state of the, the climate, so where we are. So at that point, we were on our fifth assessment report. So he took the report, which is several you know, thousand pages long, and just cut out some of the graphs and charts so that his students could try and put those into a, a logical order through cause and effect. And this turned out to be quite a successful way of educating his students. So he decided to take that process and develop it and introduce some more cards and pictures uh, to make it into the workshop that it is today. So that's how the climate fresque evolved. And the term fresk is like a fresco so you're building up a picture of climate change okay thank you you also mentioned that there are sometimes many emotions involved because people have faced different experiences with climate change and maybe have suffered from extreme weather events or something like that how do you deal with that or what is the best way to talk to people who have difficult experiences with uh, climate change so part of the workshop actually is an emotional debrief. So we give people the opportunity to voice their emotions because very often people aren't comfortable with speaking about how they're feeling emotionally. So we actually you know, sit people around in a circle and, and give them that opportunity to really voice their, their concerns and their emotions. Um, and the idea is that having made that emotional connection, we then encourage them to use that emotion in a positive way to to drive their action okay and you mentioned that the whole workshop is based on the information from the ipcc so from the report that the intergovernmental panel on climate change has um, published in my opinion one crucial question is how do we make sure that climate education isn't just about sharing information but also sparks action and meaningful changes in behavior so you teach or you educate the people and um, tell them what climate change is, how it works, how the different mechanisms are interdependent. But 
how do you um, bring them to change their behavior or um, start acting against climate change? Mm. Well, the final part of the workshop, having done that emotional connection, so we work on this uh, head, heart, hands basis. So the first part is the, the sort of intellectual understanding what is actually going on. Then we do the emotional connection. And then that leads us into this, the hands part. What can we do about this? So we will ask people to come up with ideas of actions that they could take, um, either to reduce their own personal carbon footprint or actions that they could take that would maybe drive governmental policy um, or if they're in a corporate environment, what their organization could do to uh, impact the carbon emissions that they produce. And so at the end of the workshop, we'll ask people to make a commitment to choose one action that they're going to, to drive forward with. Now, one part that perhaps is missing from that is the follow-up accountability. So in some workshops, what we've tried to do is to maybe get people to buddy up so that they can check in on each other in, say, a month's time or three months' time to see what, uh, you know, whether they have actually carried through that, that process. Um, but that's something we perhaps need to look into a bit more about how do we actually monitor and measure those actions, whether they've actually been taken and what impact those have had uh, for an organisation. That's quite interesting. Um, I also would be interested in differences between different age groups. I don't know whether you can answer this question, but I think it's um, different when you speak to um, people that are, I don't know, 20 or 10 years old. So do you see any differences in the um, way they um, are part participating in these workshops or um, taking action against climate change? Yeah, I mean, I have worked with people on this from the age of about seven or eight up to about 70, 80. <laughs> so quite, you know, it's quite a wide um, range of people who are concerned about this. Um, and for the older generation, and I would include myself in that, you know, I think we see ourselves as the guilty parties for having you know, allowed this to happen on our watch, as it were. Um, and then on the other side, for the younger generation, there's perhaps resentment against the older generation for you know, having let this happen. Um, so we have to try and bring those two together um, so that we don't make it a generational war. <laughs> um, you know, we are all in this together. Um, and you know, even for my generation, we were born into this system. We didn't sort of choose it and it's, it's happened. Um, and we have to move forward and look forward to how we can you know, work together in the future. I am concerned about the you know, children, the much younger people learning about this, that it is going to cause a lot of anxiety because the way things are heading, their future is looking pretty uncertain. Um, so, yeah, that is definitely a concern. But it seems, I mean, I have done it on occasion with sort of younger children and they do seem to understand it. I don't know whether children are just quite resilient and they maybe they will process it later, but they um, they get quite engaged in the topic and they will want to you know encourage their parents to you know stop driving a diesel car or you know not go on 
long holidays or whatever, you know, they could they can maybe drive it from that aspect as well. That's interesting. Would you say um, that younger people or children um, are stronger in their emotions um, towards climate change? Or can't you say that? Um, I wouldn't say they display their emotions a lot more than the adults. So I wouldn't really say from that point of view that they're more emotional about it. Okay, thank you. Now we come to another important topic. In my opinion, there are sometimes situations in which it is not primarily about the content and facts, um, but more about how these are presented. And that's why I would like to talk to you a bit about how climate is presented in the media. Um, my first question would be, how do you perceive the current portrayal of climate change in mainstream media? And is there any room for improvement? What would you say? I think there's plenty of room for improvement, yes. I think there has been some improvement, um, certainly here in the UK with the BBC. They always used to have this um, idea that they had to give a balanced view. So you would have a, a well-respected climate scientist talking about you know, the fact that the world is getting hotter. And then they would bring in someone who's a climate denier. It was very often Nigel Lawson, who was a former chancellor of the Exchequer probably more famous now for being Nigella Lawson's dad. <laughs> but he was someone who always said, oh, this, you know, the science isn't proven, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he, so he was sort of brought in as the, the balance. So I think finally the BBC have stopped doing that, that they recognise that the, the science isn't actually quite established now and that there isn't really space for the, the deniers. Um, I do think, though, that news items are mentioned about extreme weather conditions without making that connection to climate change. So, you know, for example, just recently in um, Queensland, the airport in Cairns has been completely flooded out because of very heavy rainfall and extreme weather. But I've never heard anyone mention on the news that that's a result of climate change or global warming. Um, so. Uh, personally, I think we should be talking about it a lot more. And I think maybe like in, uh, you know, during the COVID pandemic, we had these sort of ticker things going up on the screen the whole time about the number of people that have died due to COVID. Well, maybe we should have something similar with the amount of uh, carbon emissions or the amount of, you know, we could perhaps have a, a clock face showing how close we are to using up our carbon budget. and just to make people very aware that how serious the situation is. That's very interesting. And um, do you think the reason why we don't highlight climate change issue, issues in our media is because um, many people are not aware of the, the potential negative impacts that climate change uh, will have on our society and on the whole world? Or why do you think, uh, do they pr prioritize other crises more in the media than the climate change crisis? Well, I, I'd love to be on the, uh, the news desk and find out how they decide on these reports and things. Um, there's a lot of money from the, the fossil fuel industry to you know, promote the other side of the story. And I don't know how much of an influence that's having on news desks as to how they portray this. Um, what was the other part of your question? I think I was wondering 
why do they highlight other crises like the COVID crisis in the media mm -hmm. more than um, crises like the climate change crisis? And is this maybe linked to the, um, or is the reason because of that maybe that most of the people aren't aware of the potential mm -hmm. negative impacts that climate change will have on our society? Maybe because sometimes, I mean, there are extreme weather events and we see droughts and wildfires and uh, such things, but maybe large part in our society does not see the negative impacts that climate change has on our world, on the earth and society. And maybe this is one reason um, why we don't highlight the, the importance of um, mitigating climate change in the media. But yeah, I'm not sure. What do you think about that? Mm. I mean, I think part of the problem was that it seemed to be a problem in the far future. And I think we're now seeing that actually it's happening right under our very noses. Um, but there's also this idea that it's happening to other people in other parts of the world, so it's not going to impact us so much. Um, you know, here in the UK, I've even heard people say, oh, well, it's actually quite good because we can we can grow grapes here now, and we're now, we're now producing wine that was previously produced in, in France, that they can't grow the grapes there anymore. You know, so <laughs> trying to put a positive spin on it. Um, but... You know, the number of people, say, in Africa that are currently being impacted by climate change is in the millions of people. And that is causing migration. So we call them economic migrants because they're people who can't, you know, feed their families. So they're looking for a better life somewhere else. But actually, they're climate refugees. And we can all see the impact that that's having on Europe at the moment. Yeah, that's true. But again, um, that doesn't necessarily get tied in with the, the climate issue That's in the true. way that the media portrays it. You mentioned that it would be um, important to talk more about climate change in the media or in general highlight this topic. Can you provide any examples of effective media campaigns or storytelling approaches that successfully communicate climate related topics to diverse audiences? Um, well, I've got two examples, actually, I can think of. One is uh, a visual produced by Professor Ed Hawkins at the University of Reading, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the warming stripes. And that was really quite a game changer. I think that came out around the time of COP26. And it was just it's just a very simple way of showing the increase in temperature over a period of time. And it goes from sort of blue at one end to getting increasingly more red and red as we get you know, to the current time. And so that gives people a, a, a very visual image of, of global warming. And the, the, the fact that we've had to change the name, you know, when I first learned about this, we called it global warming because the average global temperature was noticed to, was observed to be increasing. And when climate scientists started talking about global warming, there happened to be a big freeze in the east coast of America and, and so the media started saying, what do you mean global warming? We're having lots of snow and ice here. That's not warming, that's getting colder. So the, the terminology got changed to climate change because that's the impact that it has. In one part of the world, it might make it hotter and somewhere else temporarily, it might make it colder. But the overall uh, average global temperature is increasing. And that's what the, the warming stripes is showing very, very clearly. And so when you get people trying to deny that this is happening, you can show them this and say, well, these are the actual temperatures displayed in color format. And it makes it very clear what's going on. 
And then the other example I was going to give is the recent um, use of comedians to translate climate scientists. And um, actually, what one of your professors at Imperial College, I think, was involved in that project, uh, Frederica Otto, who, with Nish Kumar, put together a very clever video to explain what's going on with climate science, but also making it a bit funny and accessible to people who perhaps don't understand all the scientific terminology. That's very interesting. And um, you have already introduced my next question, um, <laughs> which is more linked to language. When we talk about storytelling, I think language in general is very important. And maybe you could give me um, an explanation or um, share what you think about language in general and how the language we use to discuss climate change does affect public understanding and policy action. Well, I think it's far too complicated for the general public to understand, and it's made very complicated by academics, which is one of my frustrations really with academia, which is why I, I didn't continue in academia and I decided to take a different route uh, for climate education. Um, you know, just all the acronyms that are involved in this. We talk about the IPCC, we talk about GHG, um, you know, there's, there's just all these um, three letter, three and four letter acronyms that uh, you need to get your head around, TCFD, and you know, I'm sure yeah. you're very familiar with all of those. But if yeah. you were to talk to your auntie back home about it, she probably wouldn't have a, a first idea what you're talking about. So I think we need to, without <clears throat> changing the science and dumbing it down, we just need to make it more accessible for people to understand. And I think, I believe that's something that through the Climate Fresk workshop, we're able to do by uh, trying to take fairly complex ideas of science and put them into terminology that people can really understand. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and I think the use of language, as you said, goes hand in hand with the problem of exclusion. And um, the next question would be, how can we ensure that discussions around climate change are inclusive and accessible to people from various cultural, linguistic and educational backgrounds? So, well, as I've said, we need to make the, the terminology a bit simpler. And actually, this takes me back to my, my sort of previous career in IT. And actually, in between the IT and the, the climate science, I was a yoga teacher. And, um, and a lot of yoga teachers use Sanskrit terminology to describe postures in a, in a yoga class. Don't know if you've ever participated in yoga. Um, but I made a very concerted decision early on in my yoga teaching career that I wasn't going to use Sanskrit because I felt it was too exclusive. And, I, uh, you know, why not say downward facing dog? You know, that's difficult enough for people to understand this, perhaps. Uh, rather than using the, a very long Sanskrit word about it. But if you understand it, it gives you this sense of superiority, perhaps, that, oh, yes, I know what that means, and, and the other person doesn't know what that means. Whereas if you use simple English, if English is your first language, whatever your, your language is, but, you know, words that people can understand. So people can understand, perhaps, um, food shortages rather than, you know, agricultural yield loss or something. You know? <laughs> uh, so we need to try and put it into words that the general public can understand. 
Yeah, I think so as well. And I remember, I remember the last time we spoke, talked about a situation in your private life. Um, it was about a word that the person didn't know, even though the person was well educated, as you said. Um, would you maybe like to share this example with us and um, talk about this word you used and mm -hmm. the person didn't know? Sure, yeah. So actually, um, another workshop that I also offer is the biodiversity collage. So this is based on the IPBES report, which talks about biodiversity loss and ecosystem changes, I think it is, um, which are all you know quite long words that are difficult for people to understand. So I was explaining to a friend about this biodiversity collage, and she said, I don't really understand what biodiversity is. And, and actually, I sort of took a step back and I thought, I, I was at that point a few years ago as well. And so I said, well, actually, it's just what it's nature. It's just all the, the animals and the plants in nature. That, and, and we are part of that. We're also an animal. Um, but yeah, so sometimes when we use terms which in academia are very common, perhaps for people who are not in that environment, uh, don't really understand what, what that terminology means. Yeah, and that is a problem because I think this is the exclusive part of our um, communication um, about climate change. But do you think it would be better to use easier language when we talk about climate change? Uh, do you think it would make it maybe less important because we don't use the specific terminologies and the academia language and maybe this would um, show the picture of a less important crisis because we use I don't know, I wouldn't say children language, but um, less down language. Yeah. Perhaps. There, there is a danger with that, that you, well, you actually change the science. I mean, one, one example of that, which has happened, is that instead of talking about carbon dioxide emissions, we talk about carbon. Well, actually, from a, a chemical point of view, you know, carbon is not the problem. It's carbon dioxide, the gas that is the problem being in the in the upper atmosphere. Um, and when people talk about carbon pollution, well, is is carbon dioxide a pollutant? You know, we're breathing it in and out all the time and it's not doing us any harm. The harm happens when it's in the wrong place uh, or we've got too much of it in, in the wrong place, which is what's happening with the, the atmospheric carbon that is causing the greenhouse effect to increase the temperature on Earth. Um, but one way that kind of simplifies things perhaps for people is to give them, as I said, a visual image. Um, and one of the things that we use in the, the climate press is this idea of the, the ice age, that we talk about um, the warming that's happened from the last ice age, so 20,000 years ago to today. Um, and People have often heard of this 1.5 degrees of warming that we're trying to limit. People quite often don't know what that actually means. Where, where's the increase from and to? And if you ask a lot of people, when are we trying to you know, stop this warming by? They'll say 2050. Well, actually, we're looking at the end of the century that the, you know, we're trying to prevent this increase by. The fact that we're likely to hit it in the next five to 10 years is of much more concern because if we, if we think we've got another 70 years to go, well, maybe we haven't. Um, but yeah, so and it's from 
pre-industrial times. So we're talking about a period of about 250 years that we are trying to limit this increase in warming to 1.5. And to put that into context, we look back at 20,000 years since the last ice age, and we've only actually seen a warming of five degrees in that time. And that makes it a lot more impactful that this 1.5 degrees is really quite significant because for a lot of people, you know, particularly in Britain, it would be quite nice to have uh, the temperature a little bit warmer by one and a half degrees on, on a particular day. But it's not like that. It's, it's this global average temperature, which is quite a hard concept to get your head around. So I think trying to explain things through using visuals like that uh, can help. Yeah, I think so as well. And I remember that the um, Climate Fresk workshops use different uh, language sets for different age groups. So you have a language uh, set for people who are younger and then language set um, for the older people or people that are more aware of the language we use um, when we talk about climate change. And do you think in general that it would be useful to use the less complicated uh, language sets for all of the groups? Or would you say it doesn't make sense because climate change is not an easy topic and you need to get familiar with the complex terminologies to understand it. <laughs> Actually, it's quite an interesting debate that's kind of going on in the climate fresh community. Should Because we have, um, as you say, we have the, the full version of there's 42 cards that you lay out, um, but we can remove uh, four of those cards to make it into a slightly more simplified version. There's also a, a completely separate set, which is aimed at children, which is the junior version of the fresque. But the simplified version yeah, takes out some of the more complex scientific terminology. Uh, and I think the one you're probably thinking about is radiative forcing. So one, one of my colleagues says, you know, do you think people are going to change their um, behavior because they understand the radiative forcing card? And you know, the answer is, well, no, probably not. <laughs> So wouldn't it be better, you know, because that can be a card that sometimes it's quite hard to explain. So you can maybe spend five minutes just talking about that one card. And wouldn't it be better to have that five minutes later on in the discussion when people are talking about the, the types of changes that they can make in their own life to reduce their carbon emissions? So I think it, it very much depends on your audience. I mean, if you're if you're presenting this to a group of, um, you know, engineering students, who probably understand those concepts anyway, then yes, it's good to include it. But if you're doing it to, a, say, a public audience where you, you, you don't know what level of science background they've got, then you know, maybe it might be best to, to leave those more complex cards out. And when we talk about the audience, do you see any differences between a university environment compared to a business environment where you go to companies and talk about climate change and try to engage them to do the climate fresh workshop and um, yeah, take action against climate change or just think about climate change and talk about climate change? Do you see any kind of different levels of engagement? Uh, yes, well, so far the corporate uh, companies that I've been involved in are already sort of in the energy reducing sector so there are already people who kind of got the uh, scale of the issue but perhaps it's enabled them to see the bigger picture of, of more the human impact that it, that uh, climate change is having so maybe there's more of an understanding of that the interesting thing with students is 
very often one of the actions that we'll hear are people saying, I'm now rethinking where I might work in the future. So I think it could definitely have an impact on people's you know, career choices, um, which is quite uh, an impactful thing. And actually, one of the things I, I really like with students is people at your level, so master's students, who maybe have already worked in industry and will now be in a very, very powerful position when you go out into your future careers to, to really make a, an impactful change um, because you're the, you're the guys that you know, are going to have that opportunity to really, to really make a difference in companies by using the knowledge that you've got to, to spread that information further. And in general, um, you have done a, quite a lot of workshops. Um, do you see a positive shift or in, an increased awareness maybe inside your workshops or from the groups you, you um, educated or you frisked, as you say? Um, is there a trend to more awareness and more uh, action against climate change? Well, every group is different. And it also varies quite a lot on whether it's a mandatory requirement as part of your course to attend a workshop or whether it's people who've chosen to be there. Um, so as an example, um, I won't name the universities, but I've done two different uh, university press recently. One was to a mass audience of, I think, 400 students. And maybe it was because it was, you know, it was a very, well, it was done in several uh, groups. But the level of engagement that we got to become facilitators, so that's, that's kind of one quantitative thing that we can measure as to how many people have done the workshop that then want to go on to give the workshops themselves by becoming facilitators, as you have done yourself. So that's something we can really measure. So we got quite a low uptake with that very large group that was mandatory. But in another university where we had fewer people coming because it wasn't mandatory and it was a rainy afternoon. <laughs> so even those that said they were going to come didn't necessarily show up. But of those that did bother to come, we got almost 100 percent of people wanting to become facilitators. So it does very much depend on the reasoning that people have to come to the workshop in the first place, which is perhaps driven by their, a, their own knowledge of the topic uh, in advance. And, and their desire to make the world a better place. Okay. And last but not least, do you have any recommendations for um, individuals or people from university, master students? Um, what actions can we take to improve the general knowledge or awareness in society? Are there easy ways how we can improve this awareness or how we talk about climate change? Well, firstly, yes, to actually talk about it. So I think quite often people are a bit nervous of bringing the topic up in sort of the wider environment, um, but also leading by example. So, you know, if people see you taking action, um, then they might ask, you know, or say your clothes that you're wearing, and I'll say, oh, that's a nice sweater. Where did that come from? And you could say, Oh, well, I, you know, I got it in a, in a charity shop or I bought it off Vinted or whatever, you know, so to give the idea that to, by setting an example of us taking our own low carbon actions 
um, will then drive other people to to do something similar because that's how human nature works. People want to, you know, emulate others that they respect. So I think that's one way that people can really uh, make that impact. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much for our conversation and the interesting insights and information you shared with us today. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you about climate education, media representation and the influence of language on our attitudes and behavior in relation to climate change. If this episode has piqued your interest and you have more questions, check out the Board on Earth website. And um, to everyone listening, I hope you have enjoyed this episode with Rosie. If you'd like to hear more insights, don't forget to subscribe to the Imperial Business Podcast. And if you have any suggestions or know the perfect guest for us to interview, please drop us a message at podcast.greenminds at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and see you soon.